Well, good morning, everybody. It is snowing outside. We got Christmas trees here. It is that time of year, and it's so great to see each and every one of you dressed so festively. You know, Christmas ties, Christmas sweaters, all that stuff. I, I love it personally. Um, this is about all the festive I, I will get, but full disclosure. But uh, in the spirit of the season, we are stepping away from our, our regular scheduled programming as we've been walking through the book of First Peter, and we're actually going to step out um, this week and next week to talk about the nativity, the, the incarnation. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, a passage that many of you may be very familiar with. You know, when you think of that, you don't think of Christmas, of the nativity. But the fact of the matter is, what we celebrate this time of year is so much more than a silent night or a baby in a manger, no room in the inn, all those things. No, what we celebrate at Christmas is so much more than just the nativity itself. I mean, every year we talk about what's the real meaning of Christmas, the real meaning of Christmas, and we know it's not what our our culture or society has made it out to be, but actually what we celebrate at Christmas is so much more than just even the nativity itself. Yes, we, we celebrate the virgin birth, We celebrate the humble circumstances under which our Savior was born, but we know that that Jesus' birth was by no means the beginning of his story. Our births may be the beginning of our story, if you were to write our biography, but we know with Jesus, the the Son of God, no, he has always existed for all of eternity. So his birth wasn't the beginning. So what was the significance about that night in Bethlehem? See, what we celebrate at Christmas is the central miracle of our faith. It's a phenomenon that sets God's redemptive story apart and far above any other narrative, any other world philosophy, any other sequence of events, any other belief system. It sets it far apart, far above, far beyond, and that is the incarnation. God visiting us by becoming one of us. Powerful, eternal God taking on weak, fragile human flesh. To be born, to live, and to die, all all in human form to accomplish God's salvation plan. There's nothing like it. C.S. Lewis put it this way, He said, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. You know, the incarnation itself is not just a powerful story. It's not just a powerful motif or, or something that we would get emotional about, though we should. You know, the incarnation is emotional. It's amazing. It's a humbling part of real human history. But the incarnation also gives us a spectacular demonstration of who we ought to be. God the Son walks among us so we would know how to walk. So again, we're in a passage that isn't typically associated with this time of year, but it can be and it should be, and that is Philippians 2. So if you haven't already, turn there with me. And we read in verse 1, 
So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and I'm just going to pause right there. The sentence isn't even over, but uh, just to give some backdrop of this, in the, the letter to the Philippians, Paul just got done talking about suffering. Paul's writing from prison. He's writing about his own sufferings for Christ and sufferings that all believers are facing and, and will face. And now he's speaking rhetorically in the backdrop of that suffering that he just talked about. He's saying, so if in light of a world of suffering that we live in, if there's any encouragement in Christ, which <laughs> of course there is, there's the most encouragement that anyone could ever find. It's found in Christ. If there is any comfort in love, now th- this word for comfort actually isn't the type of comfort we think of. We think of comfort being a, a lazy boy recliner in a room turned exactly to 72 degrees and, you know, uh, a cup of hot chocolate. That's comfort, right? No, comfort actually means to be strengthened. It means to be strengthened. It's not, you know, just a pat on the shoulder. It means to be strengthened, which of course there is comfort in love. If there is any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, then in verse 2 he goes on, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, if you were here last week, you may notice that these qualities to which Paul is exhorting us to to exhibit and to be are basically identical to what we covered in 1 Peter chapter 3. You know, we are to be of the same mind. We are to have the same love, be in full accord, to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look to the interests of others. Seriously, you can put one finger here in Philippians 2 and then find 1 Peter 3 verse 8 and you'll see the exact same things here that we're talking about. And you know, this is just the Lord at work because I wanted to preach on Philippians chapter 2 regardless. And then as I was studying this, I was saying, wow, this is perfect. It dovetails completely off of the message that we covered last week. This is about how we believers should live amongst each other in the church. So these exact same parallel things written by two different apostles, two different human authors to two very different church circumstances and situations in different parts of the world, that is not a coincidence. That's the word of God right there. And now we won't belabor the definitions of each of these qualities as we talked about them so much last week, but just to reiterate what this is and what we are called to be as individual believers, But also, so much more importantly, we're called to collectively demonstrate this as a body of believers. Paul's exhorting us individually to exhibit these qualities, but most profoundly, this will manifest itself in a community of believers, in a community of faith. Now, last week, I think I said four or five times, you probably got sick of hearing it, and I say this as much as for myself as I say for any one of us in here, that all of this is simple. You know, we, we can understand what it's saying. 
all of these words make sense. We can kind of picture it in our minds. It's great too. We, we desire to see it. It's an ideal. We nod our heads. It's simple in that it is straightforward and easy to understand. And of course, it's easy for us to recognize in other people when they aren't exhibiting uh, same-mindedness or same love, being in one accord and, um, you know, not doing anything from selfish ambition or conceit and in humility. We, we can picture what that looks like. It is simple, but it ain't easy. It's not easy for any one of us. It's not easy to demonstrate collectively as a church body. It's not easy for me. But here, Paul ups the ante even further. He told us to be of one mind, just like Peter did. And now he's going to give us who that one mind is. He's going to set the bar so incredibly high, but in such a profound way. That's what he launches into right here in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. To have this mind, this is the mind we are to have amongst ourselves. Also translated in some translations, have this attitude, have this mode, have, have this setting, have this general state of being. And, and we are to have this mind among yourselves. And what he's saying among yourselves means not so much that each of you individually must manifest this mind, although it absolutely starts there with each one of us collectively exhibiting this mind. But what Paul means is have this mind among yourselves in that the church collectively as a body, as an organism should be manifesting this. So in other words, If an outsider were to look in on the church body, or in fact, scratch that, better yet, when Christ looks upon his local church body, is this the mind, the attitude, the spirit, the disposition that he would find? Is that what is evidently present? Is it what's present to to visitors, to outsiders, to people within the church? But even more, when the Lord examines our fellowship and our worship and our attitude that each one of us has toward one another, is that what he would find? And that is the example of the incarnate Christ, who, as it says here, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus always was, always is, always will be eternally, always existing as God. He is God in the form of God, the nature of God in every way. That means he's outwardly and inwardly manifesting this reality of his complete deity throughout all of eternity. Yet, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this is an interesting statement right here. Jesus never relinquished, ever. He never forfeited his deity. He never relinquished his place in the Godhead. He never relinquished his equality as God or his divinity whatsoever. But the word for equality here is actually in the plural. Now, if you look at your translations, I don't know if any of our English translations actually translate that Greek word to the plural, but what this is actually saying is Jesus did not consider his equalities with God a thing to be grasped. Those 
marvelous riches of heaven that he enjoyed for, for all of eternity, the glorious worship of countless angels and that perfect paradise and unmitigated glory that was his and his to possess. He owns all of these things. He deserves all of these things. Yet he did not consider these things a thing to be grasped. Now, grasp means to, to cling on to something like, like a prize or a privilege, something that you find to be just precious to you that you will, you'll white knuckle, you'll not let go of, to hold on to at all costs. He did not consider those things as things to be grasped. But instead, what does it say? Verse 7, but emptied himself. Now let's be clear, what did he empty himself of exactly? Well, we already covered, he, he never emptied himself of any deity, of any perfection or any divine nature or of any of his rights to be worshipped and obeyed and followed. In fact, that's what he would present himself as in his incarnate state. But the New King James Version says he made himself of no reputation. He completely divested himself of every advantage, every privilege of heaven in order to humble himself. I guess you could simply put it this way. The one who created everything and owned everything forsook everything. Jesus emptied himself of divine comfort. He emptied himself of the voluntary exercise of some of his divine attributes. While he did not cease to be omniscient or omnipresent or omnipotent, he did limit the exercise of those qualities because he was found in human likeness. He emptied himself with that perfect face-to-face -face fellowship with the triunity, and he submitted himself fully to the will of the Father and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So as we've already illustrated, he started, well, he had no beginning, but he was so incomprehensibly high and exalted beyond any imagination, but he emptied himself as it says here, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus forsook the privileges of kingship by taking the form of a slave. He intrinsically has the form of God, but then he takes the form of a bondservant. Jesus is fully and innately, as he existed and exists as God, at this point in the incarnation, he now also exists just as fully in the form of a servant. Now, Jesus' entire life would be that of a servant. As he said about himself, Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then he says, in Luke 22, 27, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now this here is truly what was made known to the world that night in Bethlehem. This phenomenon. 
Obviously, the incarnation began nine months earlier when the Virgin Mary conceived of the Holy Spirit. That's when Jesus' incarnate life truly began. But the first outward glimpse, the first breaths in human flesh, the first cries as an infant, the, the first time his young mother Mary and his young adoptive father Joseph would ever lay eyes upon him would be in a cave used as a stable. On a night where they had found no accommodations among relatives or anywhere else in the city, this magnificent, most glorious moment of the Savior of the world breathing air for the first time happened in a place not even fitting for the lowest of society, let alone for the King of creation. But on that night, he would be laid in a stone feeding trough to sleep beneath the stars that he himself had made. Just think about that for, for a moment. Now, even that thought of the incarnation is staggering. Just the thought of what, what all of this means, how our transcendent God infuses himself into our dimension, our timeline, our material world by taking on a body just like ours and being born just like we are, seeing, hearing, smelling, feeling, facing infirmities just like we do. And in those first moments in Bethlehem, Jesus had already humbled himself to a degree that well, words escape me. But we know there's so much more to the story than just that, isn't there? Jesus has already, just in that first moment, humbled himself beyond what's even comprehensible. But verse 8 we read, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So again, Jesus would have already completed the greatest display of humility eternity could ever know if he would have stooped down from heaven, from where his exalted place in heaven, and taken on the form of of an emperor. If he would have lived a a life of lavish luxury in a palace, being served left and right with people feeding him grapes and all that, because even that existence, such an existence in such a form in our fallen world would still be an immeasurably degraded existence compared to his glory in eternity. But instead, he's born into inhumane, degrading conditions. He lives as a servant. And not only does he take on human form, verse 8 says he's found in human form. And what that means is that everyone around him saw him as, as a human. Most people who observed Jesus, even those who witnessed his, his miracles, even his own siblings for much of their life, ultimately rejected him as being merely a man. Most of the people who witnessed and saw him did not see him as God incarnate, even though he was attesting, 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 providing miracles that demonstrated he was who he said he was. Most people, when they saw him, he was being found in in human form. We will not have this man reign over us. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. Isaiah 53 
written some 700 years before the incarnation prophesies that he had no form or, or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. His human experience, his existence on this earth was a humbling one relative to other humans alive at that time. Now, Jesus didn't live in complete destitution, but he was of a humble profession in a humble town, in a humble time, in a humble territory under the control of the Roman Empire. Yet the text continues in verse 8, he humbles himself even further. If that's not enough, here he humbles himself by becoming obedient to death. Now, even, even that, that wording right there, obedient to death, demonstrates that he is truly divine. Now, none of us are, are going to be obedient to death. It's just something that will happen to us. Death is not a, a choice that we decide to submit ourselves to. No, it's just a consequence that all humans have to face. But God the Son, he was obedient to death as something that he never deserved to or needed to experience. He was in perfect submission to the eternal redemptive plan, even to death. And if that's not all, it says even death on a cross. Now, it's been, it's been said that truly no one dies with dignity, but the cross is the least dignified way to die imaginable public, stripped, naked, beaten, mocked, raised up for all to see with the charges for which you are dying prominently displayed above you. It was Rome's way of saying, we won, don't ever mess with Rome. A way for everyone else to walk by, jeer at that person and say, yeah, don't anybody ever do that. Crucifixion is the most brutal, excruciating, inhuman, torturous form of execution probably ever invented. But even then, that is not all. What was happening on the cross was in fact far more oppressive and, and degrading than anything Rome could ever inflict on a human body. For in that moment, he bore the full weight and shame of all of our sins. The triune Godhead had only known perfect, harmonious unity for all of eternity, but it was in this moment for the first time that God the Father turned his face away from God the Son as God the Son bore the payment for those sins perfectly. And this was the plan from all along. He did that for me. He did that, all of this, for us. There is no limit to what God would do to display His infinite glorious love. You know, Charles Spurgeon said, the lower he stoops to, say, to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. 
Blessed be his name. He stoops, he stoops, and he stoops. And when he finally reaches our level and becomes a man, he still stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. But we also know that the story of our humbled king doesn't end there. We'll close with verses 9 through 11. It says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. With our opulent decorations, our Black Friday sales, and all our creature comforts, our stacks of gifts, our self-indulgence, everything that pervades our lives and distracts us from our humbled and then exalted King, this message of the Incarnation is one of profound, unparalleled meekness, of humility, of sacrifice, of love. God the Son transformed himself to our likeness to rescue us and transform us into his likeness. Does his humility, selflessness, and love live through you? Does it live through us? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for what an amazing picture you've provided for us. Lord, that we know that, that your demands of us are, are, are not steep and that they are, 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 are many and, and burdensome. We just know that you demand all of us, that your amazing love demands our souls our lives, our, our all. But Lord, we just thank you for that real act in real human history that we look back to, we look forward to, that, that, that defines our lives, that you visited us by becoming one of us and walked among us. And we put you to death for the sins of us. Lord, you demonstrate your love that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Lord, I pray that that would pervade our thoughts, our hearts, our attitudes, our aim in life, our everything. That as we look at this, our our worship would just abound all the more. Our gratitude, our thanksgiving. And we give you all the glory. And we await when you set foot on this earth again. In the name of Christ our King, amen.